0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we cover this week in provincial and municipal politics with John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer. The federal government is poised to amend the criminal code provision on the use of a controversial defense known as self-induced extreme intoxication. It's following a Supreme Court of Canada ruling last month. And what is the Great Replacement Theory? And how has it found itself an audience here in Canada? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. (laughs) today
1: on the bill kelly show on 900 chml
0: a week in review with the provincial and municipal politics and it's been quite a week already and uh to that end we're so pleased to welcome back to the program john best who is the publisher of the bay observer john always a pleasure to have you on the show hope you're going well these days
2: yeah just great lovely day bill and uh nice end to the week
0: let me delve quickly into the federal scene for just a second because this was uh, just hot off the presses as of yesterday. Early in the week, of course, the, the finance minister slash uh, deputy PM, uh, Christy Freeland, said, Look, at, you know, this inflation and, and conflation and everything else, it's, it's a, a global problem. Not much we can do about it. Uh, yesterday, she was in front of the podium saying, Well, yeah, here's what we're going to do about it uh, an $8.9 billion plan to help Canadians battered by inflation. Uh, and and as, as you analyze it, and I know you probably already have done that, of course. Uh, most of these are just retreads of stuff that they had in the budget and some other stuff like that, but I guess there was an urgency because of everybody complaining about this to at least, you know, give the perception that they're trying to get something done and do something different.
2: Yeah. And, uh, I, I've seen some of the cartoons that are, you know, showing, uh, inflation as a kind of a monster and, and shoveling wheelbarrows full of money at it, which, uh, you know, is kind of counterintuitive, Um uh, spending money to fight inflation. But really, it's pretty targeted. And and I think the big piece is uh, that uh, your older, uh, old age pensioners are going to get about $700 a year extra. Uh, So, you know, if it's targeted to people who really are getting, you know, the brunt, everybody feels inflation, but we don't all feel it equally. It's a function of how much income you have. So, So uh, giving extra money, I think, uh, to uh, pensioners is, is, uh, uh, you know, a sensible thing, uh, especially since we had an announcement, I was listening to your news earlier about this big hike that we're going to get in fuel costs for uh, home heating, natural gas. So. Um, You know, the reality is the the inflation is being experienced around the world and and governments, uh, uh, individual governments, especially in a small country, smaller country like Canada, there's not much we can do. Uh, Nobody wants to admit that, so they have to look like they're doing something.
0: uh, uh, We'll follow that story, of course, uh, as it develops over the next couple of days, I'm sure, Uh, because inflation's not going away anytime soon. That was the underscored message, I think, that we had to go into. Quickly into Ontario politics. Election night, of course, uh, both Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath announced they were stepping down as leaders of their uh, respective parties. Uh, And the whispers have already started around Queen's Park, of course, about who may want those jobs. The Liberals uh, may be a little more difficult. There's not too many people in their their caucus to choose from. The NDP, uh, I know Wayne Gates uh, from Niagara Falls, uh, the NDP member from down there, uh, has announced his intentions, not officially, but just that he's going to be doing this. There's a few other people kicking the can, too. From where do they get these leaders? And and is is there a call not just for a new leaderhood job, but maybe a new direction for these parties to to try to catch the public's attention?
2: Well yes uh, I, but i'm not sure that the that the willingness is there in the NDP for a change in direction um, it, it's always been a party that uh, to some degree put put its ideology ahead of electoral success um, that's changed somewhat but i i don't see a, a push in the NDP for uh, trying to move to the center um, that's something the liberals should be thinking about doing but um, no, I, I I think they will stick uh, largely to where they are, and uh, hope that uh, as they have. I was just looking at the last ten elections in Ontario. If you take out the one where Bob Ray took them to victory, seventy four seats. They average just over nineteen seats per election for the last ten elections, and and that's kind of where you are if you're if you're NDP. Uh, you're looking at Somewhere around 20 seats, that's, and somewhere around 20-odd percent of the popular vote. That's, that's sort of the normalcy for that party, uh, and it's, uh, it's worked for years uh, in the sense that you haven't seen major ideological revolts, nothing since the 60s, really, where there was a disruption within the party over what direction they were going in. Uh, so, I, I think it's business as usual. Uh, people that support the NDP do for a very specific policy and ideological reason. I don't see it changing significantly uh, in the hopes of gaining power.
0: Well, especially since, I mean, if you even want to go back uh, to the last couple of federal elections, uh, the NDP tend to punish leaders who try to bring them into the middle. So, which maintains? I guess your your line of thinking, of the ideology is very important to them. Uh, Tom Mulcair got dumped pretty quickly. Um, you know, he thought he was going to be the prime minister in waiting as that election was called, and uh, and it didn't work out well for him. Uh, very, you know, they went to a policy convention what well, was over a month later, and they dumped him. Andrea Horvath was accused by some members, uh, according to some of our sources at Queen's Park, for trying to move the party to the middle. I, I, I didn't really see that, but uh, but that's the way they felt about it. So it just seems as if they want to stick to that dogma, and, and that's going to be it. But you know, that's for them to decide. What about the Liberals? Uh, uh, Del Duca got one kick at the can, and, and that was it i don't know what's going to happen now um, you know or guys uh, technically they don't even have to pick a member from their own caucus i mean anybody as an interim leader certainly they do but anybody can run for the leadership if they want to and in the past we've had people step down from federal uh, jobs to run bob ray that you just mentioned did that of course he was a an mp for the ottawa area uh, and stepped down to run for the ontario ndp and eventually became the premier uh, is is that the likely route that's going to have to be taken here
2: well, I think there's going to be a temptation to uh, for someone that's in that very diminished caucus uh, to run because clearly uh, Stephen Del Duca was at a tremendous disadvantage in, in not being able to participate in question period uh, during the last four years. Uh, he was, you know, and he, he had a tough job uh, roaming around uh, the province. Uh, I think he was actually in a minivan. Um, you know, really trying to raise money, trying to meet with uh, uh, some pretty bedraggled uh, uh, writing associations. Uh, a very, very, very thankless job. And But he was not in the House, and so his profile was low. And then he had to kind of very quickly introduce himself to the Ontario public in the election campaign. I suspect there's going to be a temptation to not repeat that. Uh, unless it's just a superstar coming in from the outside, uh, I think they're, they're probably going to have to look at uh, their caucus and um, you know try to pick somebody that can get on their feet immediately after the convention and, and start firing away at the, at the current government. I'm, I'm not privy to their internal thinking, so maybe that's my thinking, but they, they certainly were handicapped over the last four years not having their leader in the house.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, one name that's been thrown around, of course, is Mitzi Hunter, the MPP for the uh, GTA area. But again, she's going to get the same uh, stuff thrown at her that Del Duca you know, She's a Kathleen Wynne, you know, that sort of stuff, yada, yada, yada. So I don't know what's going to happen there, but that's, you know, they're going to have a lot of time for that to figure out. Very quickly, I want to move back into the municipal politics. And uh, I guess to the surprise of no one, or maybe a few people anyway, uh, former Hamilton Mayor uh, Bob Bertina has announced that he wants the job once again. Uh, And made it official earlier this week. He was on our show just a couple of days ago talking about that. The criticism about Bob coming back into this thing is well, you've heard it as well, John. That well, you know, he's had his shot. It's time for somebody else. Uh, They want younger ideas, fresher ideas, and this is a retread. I mean, they say the same thing about Fred Eisenberger, who, by the way, is going to make his announcement on Monday. We're told. Where are we with this? It's, it's. I know it's only one vote on council, but. The mayor's the mayor, and he's the or she is the leader of council, and it's a pretty important job. Keenan Loomis, of course, has already announced he's the uh, former head of the uh, Chamber of Commerce here in the Hamilton area. There's a lot to choose, and boy, anybody can't you you can't look at this list of candidates even so far and say, well, they're all the same because they aren't.
2: No, they aren't, and uh, you know some of the stuff they've been throwing at uh, at Rutina. Uh, and, and it was interesting. I saw that Ryan McGreal, who certainly would be not be listed as a, a Britina fan under normal circumstances, he he wrote an article where he where he said he was concerned about uh, the ageism that's being shown towards Bretina. Now, he, he went on to say there's a whole bunch of other reasons why he would uh, disagree with him. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to fly there. You know, it's it's we we live in a part of the world in southern Ontario where where everybody respected a, a a mayor nearby that was nearly 100 years old at the time she was mayor and and was still very effective he's he's in good shape he's' uh, he, he's, he's been getting around town uh, for really ever since he came back from Ottawa and he's getting a lot of encouragement. So uh, if, it, if it's because he's an older person, uh, I think that's going to fall on its face, frankly. Um, there's, we'll, we'll see where this, we know we're in for kind of an ideological war here in the upcoming election. And uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, what people are looking for in, in the wake of all the controversy we've had with, with various, you know, we've got this Red Hill inquiry going on right now, um, frankly, I don't see a lot of council involvement at the end of the day in that issue. But all these uh, so-called scandals—I think there's a there's a mood for good government, uh, to use an old phrase. So uh, I think people are looking for um, a, a little bit of stability. And if we look at this provincial election, there seemed to be kind of a pushback against uh, you know Doug Ford, who is a blue-collar, hard hat kind of a guy um, did very, very well. And that may be pointing to where people are municipally as well, that they're, they're really not interested in, uh, maybe a lot of experimentation and that sort of thing. And the other point is the mayor is only one vote and, and, uh, uh, whoever becomes the mayor, their job is going to be to work with this council, which is going to have new faces. Uh, it's going to have four new faces, but at a minimum. And, uh, so I, I think it's, I think the real challenge is going to be A, working with council, but B, uh, restoring confidence in our municipal government. Bob, uh, Bretina talked about that, but I mean, we've been hearing that really all year from different groups that, you know, the, the real issue is uh, competency of government and whoever can put the best uh, argument that they're the one that can do it, I think is gonna win in the fall.
0: Former, another former Hamilton mayor Larry Diani has uh, has weighed in on this. I don't know if you saw his tweet earlier this week, uh, expressing some concern that this Hamilton council is leaning a little too far to the left. Uh, in many people's minds. And, and that could be problematic. And uh, I, I know there's no party politics or municipal politics, but yeah, there is, uh, by ideology, etc. And uh, there's a concern that, that maybe that's one of the things that's holding them up uh, from, you know, government assistance, economic development, all these sorts of things. He's listed a few things. that Not a new theory, but uh, how do you assess that?
2: Um, I, I tend to agree with him, quite frankly. Uh, I, I, I think not so much the current council, but uh, you know this this idea that we can replace uh, you know uh, the idea of just throwing everybody out because they're incumbents um, and long time incumbents that, that's a pretty shallow uh, view of things. Uh, it, it's quite possible to um, to be in office uh, for a long time and partly because you've maybe done a good job representing your your constituents and looking after their needs. Um, at the municipal level, people are really focused on bread and butter stuff. Uh, you know, this uh, CAA study this week that chose Barton Street to be the worst street in Ontario. Um, that's kind of emblematic of, uh, okay, what are we doing about our infrastructure deficit? People expect municipal governments not to preach to them. They expect their municipal government to manage garbage collection, transit, uh, fire, police, uh, you know, it's, it's really a bread and butter portfolio. If you, if you want to be ideological, run for parliament because there nobody cares. Uh, you can talk about Palestine or whatever you want to do. Uh, but at the local level, you've really got to focus on these bread and butter issues. And uh, again, uh, I think the person that, that looks like they've got that in their head uh, is, is going to probably do very well in the
0: fall. Well, I, we got to leave it there. We're just about out of time, but I, I agree with with your assessment that uh, you don't use a person's age against them, and you don't use their tenure on council against them. It, it's their effectiveness. Because there are some people there that haven't been there very long at all that I, I don't think are very effective, and, and you don't need to be young to have out new ideas and fresh ideas. As you say, Hazel McCallion did a pretty decent job in Mississauga for a long, long time. So, long way to go before we get to voting day, and as I say, we'll find out about uh, Fred Eisenberger's. Uh, uh, Path to whatever is going to be happening, I guess, on Monday when he makes his announcement. John, as always, uh, thanks for all this. Uh, have a great weekend. And we'll see you next week.
2: My pleasure, Bill.
0: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada here that's got a lot of people scratching their heads uh, about exactly what it means and, and, and what is going to happen as a result of this. Uh, the federal government is now poised to amend the Criminal Code provision on the use of the controversial defense known as self-induced extreme intoxication. This was following a Supreme Court ruling. So what exactly does this mean? You can get away with it if you're intoxicated. I've seen a lot of speculation on social media over the last couple of days about this. And to get some clarity on that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Fugelli, who is, of course, a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Uh, Andrew, a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Morning, Bill. Good to be on.
0: Great to have you with us here. Give us your uh, interpretation of exactly, first of all, what the court did and, and how the federal government is responding to it.
3: Well, in terms of the court decision, um, it, it's something. It was a decision that, frankly, had been expected for over twenty years since this provision had been enacted. Um, what the court did is strike down the bar on the very, very rare cases where uh, self-induced intoxication leads a person into a state. Uh, where they are essentially um, uh, in automatism so that they don't have any control over their actions. They're completely ba- blacked out and they are not choosing to do what they've done. Uh, and this provides a full defense um, in, term- in comparison to regular intoxication, which has not been touched by the Supreme Court decision. The, the regular defense of intoxication gets you a conviction on a lesser charge. So, for example, if you go out and you, you get drunk um, and there's a murder that's committed and, and the jury or the judge um, accepts your uh, intoxication defense or they, f- they find the Crown hasn't proven it beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, you're convicted of manslaughter. There's a lesser offense there uh, where the, the drunkenness takes away your specific intent to do something uh, and you get convicted of, of a lesser charge. This case, the the one the Supreme Court ruled on, uh, gives you a full defense even to those lesser charges, but it is extremely rare. Uh, And and the reason the court did it um, is because the intoxication is such that it basically robs a person of voluntary conduct. It robs them of of any choice uh, in what they're doing, except for that preconditioned choice to intoxicate oneself. In terms of where Parliament is going to go with this, we don't know yet. There are some clues that have come out, but it's really going to depend on what they decide to do that, that, will, um, uh, that, that will determine whether what they're doing is constitutional and also shape the law in terms of, of these cases going forward.
0: I mean, the first thing that came to mind when I saw this yesterday uh, was, was sexual assault charges of sexual assault, and and we've heard as a defense, "While well, I was drunk, you know, you know, it wasn't me. I was I was drunk." Does this ruling have any impact on on that sort of a situation? On ninety
3: nine point nine 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 percent of the cases, no. Sexual assault is one of those case is one of those charges for which intoxication is not um, a defense. Um, th- there's a distinction in our law between general intent and specific intent offenses when it comes to intoxication defenses. And it, it's, it's a little bit difficult to pin down the, the difference between the two, uh, but there are some cases for which intoxication, the normal defense of intoxication, is a partial defense. Those are to these specific intent offenses. Murder is one. But general intent offenses, which are the vast majority of offenses, drunkenness or intoxication, isn't a defense, period. You you can't say, I got drunk and sorry, I I didn't really mean to do that. That's not what the Supreme Court decision that came out a couple weeks ago addresses. And the court's explicit about that. They say, this decision doesn't have anything to do with the normal defense of intoxication. So a month ago, you couldn't get drunk and commit a sexual assault, Today, you can't get drunk and commit a sexual assault. It's not a defense. What the Supreme Court decision was about were those extremely rare cases where the intoxication is so severe uh, that you would have to um, basically show with a constellation of evidence um, that you were robbed of any choice in what you were doing, that you became an automaton in a sense. But for the vast majority of cases, uh, getting drunk in a sexual assault charge getting drunk and committing a sexual assault um doesn't afford you a, a defense
0: so it it sounds I mean, initially when we saw this like well this is a, a huge ruling but it, it's the, as you're describing it now it's almost like a housekeeping issue here isn't it because we don't need this very often it's not even applicable but it's on the books and it shouldn't be
3: Yeah, it it was a provision that, frankly, Bill, we've known in the legal community for, like I said, for over 20 years that this was unconstitutional, Um, that, that this provision went against very core tenets of criminal law, that you are only punished um, for, uh, 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 for essentially voluntary behavior. And, and this law on the books punished people, the very rare cases where it happened, it punished people, um, for conduct that was not of their own choosing. Um, and, and but it, it's, it's the court made clear and our own, um, sort of judicial experiences made clear that these cases are so rare Um, that uh, in terms of uh, uh, a day-to-day impact on the courts, it's negligible. Um, Most people, most counsel will never have one of these cases cross their desk. That's how rare it is. And and in fact, since the the provision was enacted in the late 1990s, uh, in response to one of these cases, we've been waiting, like I said, for over 20 years for a challenge to come to it. Um, for, th- for this provision to be litigated, for someone to, to bring this up and, and for, for the constitutionality of this law to be litigated. We had to wait over 20 years because it took that long for one of these cases and, and, and a couple came at the same time. It took that long for them to come through the system. They, they just don't happen very often at all.
0: Well, and as you described it, I think if Fraser uses a constellation of evidence to substantiate that, they're going to the, the, even then. I guess the bar was set pretty high to, to be able to to meet that standard, wouldn't it?
3: Oh, in reality, it it absolutely is. You're right. You can't just get up and say, you know what? I I got so drunk, I blacked out. Sorry. Each of these cases had uh, a significant amount of expert evidence uh, in terms of the amount that was consumed of either the drug uh, or the alcohol. And and in this case, it was essentially, they were all uh, drug cases, Uh, 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 evidence on the nature of the drug, how it interacts with people generally, whether there was specific medical conditions in the person's background that made them more susceptible uh, to this drug, uh, th- th- there's, there's a, uh, there are days and days of evidence that go into this. Th- this sort of defense, you, you can't just get up and just sort of raise your hand and say, Hey, can I say I was just too drunk to do this? That's not how it works. These were legitimate cases. Um, where the, the level of intoxication had become so severe that there was clear medical evidence to show that these people had no control over what they were doing. And, and I want to make this clear. It's not they had no control over what they were doing in the sense that we use that term sort of on an everyday basis, or you hear people use it if, if they got drunk and they just say, oh, you know, I got drunk. I really wasn't in control of myself. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a level that's so deep uh, that you're, you're essentially, it's, it's almost close to a sleepwalking state um, in terms of what you're doing. And those cases are exceedingly rare um, and and uh, have only happened a couple times, as I've said, in the last number of years.
0: So i got a minute or two left here. How does parliament respond to this? Do they just strike that? Do they try to rework it, uh, reward? I mean, what are the options here in the process?
3: So the, the provision is struck, it's dead, the, the, the unanimous Supreme Court struck it down. What they can do now um, is legislate something in its place, and, and what we're all looking at is, are they going to take up the court on their suggestion of saying of creating an offense of extreme intoxication, where um, the, the offense is if you get yourself drunk to a to a significant degree that's a criminal offense um and you could have for example um, extreme intoxication or extreme intoxication bo- causing bodily harm where the the criminality is in getting yourself that drunk as opposed to necessarily what the consequences are, and and that's something that that the courts, the Supreme Court in the 1990s suggested as a way forward, the our court of appeals suggested it as a way forward, and the Supreme Court now did as well. And if they do that, I have no doubt it would it would be ruled constitutional in any challenge. And what it would do is it would criminalize people uh, who decide to get uh, drunk or uh intoxicated by drug to an extreme um level because we know as a society that when that happens the chances that somebody's going to get hurt as a result of that go up as the intoxication goes up so i would look for that to be what they do here um, and to create a very targeted and clear law uh, about the dangers of extreme intoxication
0: Andrew, thank you so much for the time today and for the clarification on this. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend.
3: You too. Take care.
0: Take care. Andrew Frigelli, uh, lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the U of T, uh, explaining exactly what the implications of this this change and this ruling from the Supreme Court.
1: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. Very troubling trend that seems to be happening in this country right now. Millions of Canadians admit to believing in conspiracy theories. Oh, that's not really new. That you know, Those have always been around. But 37% believe in what they call the Great Replacement Theory. Just what is this, and why is it attracting so much attention? David Coletto, the CEO of uh, Abacus Data, has done some research, and this is his report.
4: Basically argues that, you know, uh, policymakers in Canada are bringing in immigrants who have very different views from those that are, were already here, and that was, this is their way of trying to change society, right? Change um, the way that Canada is. And it's being talked about, you know, in in some circles, and we found that almost four in 10 Canadians agreed that that's happening. Um, and that, you know, aligns with a similar number who say much of our lives are being controlled by plots hatched in secret places by people, and that small groups, you know, are conspiring to cause and create wars and recessions and, and influence elections that are going to create conditions that are all against us. There's this you know sizable minority still minority but sizable group of canadians who are very skeptical in fact very suspicious of decision makers in whether it's ottawa whether it's in queen's park or you name it and believe that you know everything that's that's gone wrong in their lives is being directly affected by by these conspiracies that are happening
0: why are more and more people putting up with this and tolerating it and believing in it now it's it's a very valid question uh, we thank uh, David Coletto for that information. I want to bring uh, Tim Caulfield into the conversation. Uh, Tim is a uh, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and a professor with the Faculty of Law in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Uh, thanks for having me on.
0: This is not the first time we've heard about things like conspiracy theories, but oftentimes I think society at large has, has pretty much said, well, they're just crackpots, you know, what? Well, but it's, it seems to be a growing trend, a growing phenomenon, especially on social media. What's going on here?
1: It really is a growing phenomenon. And and I think it's important to emphasize right off the top, these are pretty hardcore conspiracy theories we're talking about here. This isn't fringe. These are fringe ideas that have really been, you know, largely normalized, which is a fascinating and terrifying uh, phenomenon. You know, the, the idea of the of the great uh the great replacement theory i mean and, and this has uh, um you know racist underpinnings to it it really builds on on something that's called the protocols of the elders of zion which is just this horrific uh, idea that there is are as a cabal of elite jews that are trying to you know run the world and that of course also feeds into the uh, the the Great Reset, uh, which is really one that's closest to to that that idea. So these are you know terrible conspiracy theories that have been around for a long time that it, uh, that used to be believed by yeah a, a strong cohort of individuals, but we're talking you know nine eight nine ten percent at best at best. Bill, now we're seeing you know thirty seven percent believe in in the uh, the Great Replacement theory, forty four percent believe in the Great Reset, which is tied in with the World Economic Forum. And the other thing that's happening uh, is you're seeing, you know, politician, mainstream politicians, either implicitly or in the United States, explicitly endorse these kinds of ideas, which give them further legitimacy, which cause them to become further uh, entrenched uh, in our in our thinking and I, I, I
0: that's an interesting twist I, I i see that happening almost all the time tim you, you just need to see a, you know, a news clip on the national newscast about somebody doing this they may be doing it for ulterior motives i guess but it doesn't much matter it's out there and people are buying into it i mean they may be doing it just because they figure okay i'm gonna get support not necessarily for this idea but for me because i'm one of them or at least they think i am and which sounds a little weird and but you know that's some what some politicians i guess do but the ones that that really scare me here and concern me are the, the people that do believe this stuff. And, and, you know, over the last couple of years now, we're doing a lot of stuff about pandemics and, and, you know, government's reaction to them. And you and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, and, and we do the segment with experts and people that have expertise in certain fields. Invariably, I got to tell you, Tim, after the segment's over, my producer Alicia in the studio is inundated with people calling and said that guy's full of you know what and and they're sincere i mean and it's not just once or twice it's every time that's a little frightening
1: it it is frightening and it happens to me daily i was on a show earlier today and immediately after you know you can almost time it right you can time it you're you off the show they're typing bing it shows up either in my news in my email box or and it is this ability to shut out um the evidence. It's this ability to uh, listen to your echo chamber. And of course, that's what's going on here. I understand why people may be drawn to conspiracy theories. You know, as you know, we've talked about this in the past, you know, uncertainty, fear, feeling like perhaps you're being displaced from society. All of those things make individuals more susceptible to conspiracy theories, especially if they play to their preconceived notions. Right. And then once they become part of that community that's where they get their evidence and everything else everything else even if there's you know clear evidence that contradicts their beliefs that becomes part of the conspiracy theories uh and so uh they're in this sealed world that allows them to continue to believe their conspiracy theory
0: is is part of the foundation for this though i maybe just what seems to be a, a a human trend here is that when when my life sucks i want i gotta blame somebody uh, and, and if these people come along and say, you know why your life sucks, it's because of this guy or that guy or that group. And we'll gravitate to that because it, it, I guess it rationalizes our anger.
1: That's for sure part of the equation. And, and the other thing is just looking for answers. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's why that uncertainty element is so, so important. Again, we, some research to back this up. You know, we, people, they want a clear narrative. Right. That explains what's going on in the world and conspiracy theories often provide that especially if that conspiracy theory plays to your values plays to your ideology plays to your preconceived notions um and once once it becomes part of your ide- your personal ideology uh, it becomes much more difficult to change people's minds and unfortunately bill i think that's happening here too you know you can understand why people might be drawn to these conspiracy theories when you know they're fearful uncertain you know angry But once they're there and once it becomes part of their ideology, and I think unfortunately that's what's happening, uh, it becomes much more difficult to change their mind.
0: Well, to use a phrase of the day, if it becomes mainstream, and uh, I'm not suggesting we're there yet, but boy, when 37% of the population uh, gravitate to a number of these things, that's kind of telling us we're going down that road, doesn't it?
1: For sure, it does. I I absolutely think it's been it's been normalized. I mean, look look what's going on in the United States with the with the big lie. Uh, But one of the fascinating stats also from that that Abacus study is uh, around the Bill Gates conspiracy theory and the pandemic. I mean, you know, Bill, this is a hardcore conspiracy theory, right? Uh, The idea that Bill Gates started the pandemic in order to force vaccinations, so he could put microchips in us to follow us around. Never mind, we all carry supercomputers; we don't need a microchip in us. But, but. That's a hardcore conspiracy theory, right? And it's it's believed or at least 25% of Canadians are open to the this idea. Holy cow. I mean that that is absolutely astounding. And by the way, this isn't the only study that has found this. The the, the results from this study line up with other research that's been done over the past couple months.
0: Yeah, and we've seen that example too. And and Long before social media came along, of course, these things were out there, right? as you say, and we, we usually just kind of, put you know, brush them off and say, well, it's, you know, that's them, you know, the, the, the tin hats and everything like that. But they're weaponizing it now, Tim. That's the frightening thing. I mean, we saw that in Ottawa in February. Uh, we've seen it in other parts of North America, all over the world, really, where they're not just spouting these theories, they're defending them. And, and, and it's it's. Something we haven't. Well, I'm not going to say we've never seen it before. I it didn't, you know, world wars have been started because of stuff like this. But at the same time, I didn't think we'd ever go there again. But we're, here we are.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think we've seen it on on this scale with so many different topics, right? Um, and it is social media is a big part of, of the story for sure. And again, we have a growing body of evidence that tells us exactly that. Not only does social media sort of you know create this polarization, it's you know it, it allows the transmission of all this information, anyone can, you know, get on social media and and spread this stuff. But it, it also really facilitates the building of these communities, right? And, and these echo chambers that allow people to continue, continue to b- believe. And the other thing I, I think it's important to recognize is that, you know, there are nation states that are involved in this. So again, a growing body of evidence tells us that, you know, Russia has been involved in spreading misinformation around everything from, you know, from vaccines to obviously what's going on. And Ukraine and the goal there of course is just to create information chaos right to throw sand in the gears and unfortunately Bill it's working.
0: There's so many different theories about this. I, you know, the old idea about uh, you know the the bigger the lie, the easier it is for people to understand it. It's it, the more outrageous it is. Yeah, of course that's true. I I mean, and I share some skepticism. I'm not just taking everything at face value. I I often wondered why Anderson Cooper always had Bill Gates on to talk about the pandemic, about every facet of it. You know, you, you question that, and and that's our job, I guess, in in this in this field. But at the same time, some people responded in a different way. And they just said, well, I hate that guy. You know, this is all his fault. Why does he know so much? Maybe because he started it. And all it takes is a couple of posts. and, And I guess it goes back to something I think we've talked about in the past, where we, when we seek information, and I'm using air quotes for information, uh, we, we go to sources that are going to validate what we already feel. Uh, we're not looking for for information or education here. We're looking for for the validation of the anger that we have or the hatred we have.
1: You're right. And, and that's the, it's been called the mother of all uh, conformi- uh, uh, cognitive biases. It's the confirmation bias, right? You know, you go and you find stuff that confir- confirms what you al- already believe. And I think we need to remind ourselves uh, that we all have, everyone, you know, you, me, We all we all have that that bias or hardwired into our system. Uh, And so we need to remind ourselves of that. And a good strategy is if if you hear something that sounds, you know, extreme sounds out there and it feels like your team just got a touchdown, you know, uh, that's that should be a reminder to pause and really check what's going on. And I think you make a, another really important point. You know, often there is this kernel of truth or reason that we should be skeptical, whether, you know, Big farmers not always been a good actor, right? They've done nefarious things and, and uh, there might be hidden emails someplace. You know, Hillary actually did screw up with emails, but that doesn't make Pizzagate true. And that doesn't mean that vaccines don't work, right? So I think that we always need to be scrutinizing the, the, the big lies that, that explain our situation.
0: I'm always reminded when I see some of these things, uh, of, of as you say, the way that it, well, public figures can be accelerants to this sort of thing, uh, and and the, you know what you mentioned Hillary Clinton. Of course, you, we've all heard the rumor, of course, that that her and her husband are actually running a, a child porn uh, ring that out of some pizza place, as you just mentioned, and and I juxtapose that with uh, when Obama was running against John McCain for president some years before that. And that some lady made some idiotic reference about Obama being a Muslim and a, and, a, and a terrorist, and he stopped and said, "No, he's not. You know, he's a decent man. We differ on a lot of things, our opinions, but he's a good man and a decent man." And I thought, you, you look at and the way McCain handled that, and the way things have devolved into where right now, it's it's just it's hatred and it's it's just piling on. And the, you know, if if you don't like blacks, if you don't like uh, Obama, if you don't like that boy, you that stuff just grabs you, and you and you hang on to that sort of thing, and. and now they've got a platform for it on social media.
1: Yeah, I remember that moment. Even as you were telling the story, I could picture it happening, right? You know, yeah. th- this class, you know, this decency coming from McCain, you know, wanting us to focus on on the facts. And, and that just doesn't seem to happen anymore. Politicians all over the world, right, are... are Weaponizing this, right? They're leveraging it. They're they're taking advantage uh, of these of these moments for for political gain. Look what's happening in the United States right now with the, the hearings going on with Jan, uh, January six. You have you know a GOP member after GOP member after you know White House official saying that Trump lost the election, and then at the exact same time, GOP uh, politicians across the country are running on a platform that's built on the big lie, it's it's really disheartening.
0: Well, and and as you say, the rejection of this and in, in in the face of, of information. I mean you still got, you know, some of these people, especially in the GOP, that are simply saying look, January 6 was no big deal. It was a it was just a protest that got a little bit out of hand. We saw it unfold in front of our eyes. They don't want to believe what they're actually seeing. And and this happens time and time again these days where they just I I, I don't buy that. So it didn't really happen. I don't know how they did this, but it was all staged. And that's the other element, too. And it's kind of frightening. I I only got a minute or so left here. So How far does this go? I mean, you you mentioned weaponizing about this. We saw the mass murder in the grocery store in Buffalo just a few weeks ago. Other incidents like this where, and and apparently from the research we found out these are the, the things that seem to form the foundation for some of these heinous acts.
1: Uh, it is a very scary moment in time, and and I think it is worth pausing to remind ourselves that 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 this really is a significant problem. It, it's killing people, right? In the ways that you describe, but also in with respect to the pandemic, right? You look at how the impact of conspiracy theories, misinformation, uh, what they've had on 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 people's health. It's 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 killed people. It's of course also leading to further discrimination and stigmatization. And it's also destroying our, our, you know, democratic process or our political process. So this is having a, a real impact. And I've always liked to be an optimist, Bill, on your show. I, was I, know, I know. They, you know, the glass is half full and, you know, there's misinformation strategies that we can use. And there's evidence that tells us they will make a difference. But it's becoming so much about people's world ideology, right, about their personal identity uh, that I, I am getting I am getting worried.
0: Oh, that was your optimism? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Tim, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I know. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Tim Caulfield, of course, from the University of Alberta. The Bill Kelly Show,
1: weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.